standard issue for all women. We just thought it worthwhile mentioning that we recorded the podcast on Monday before Boris Johnson was taken into intensive care. Regular listeners will know we make no bones about disliking his politics and those of the Tory government in general, but it's horribly sad and unnerving that the Prime Minister is so ill and we very much hope he pulls through. He and everyone else struggling today and tomorrow and for however long this fecker of a virus lasts. We'd be hypocrites if what's happening to Boris Johnson right now stopped us criticising the government and indeed the Prime Minister when it comes to recent measures to do with coronavirus. As it stands right now, as I record this, the PM is reported to be in a stable condition and good spirits. And we hope that his health continues to improve. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and last week I took part in a coordinated dog rescue that proved Twitter can sometimes be used for good. Hooray! What a lovely boy he was too. He is very lovely and Jones the dog is now settled with our pals down the road having a lovely time. Hashtag a lovely time. Uh, With his little white feet. And his little tuxedo. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and on Saturday, a neighbour decided to power hose my front door, uninvited, <laughs> I might add, during which he broke my letterbox and soaked my whole carpet. I mean, I'd have been happy with a roll of toilet paper, but there you have it. It all sounds like some monstrous euphemism, doesn't it? To be honest, I think it might have been more fun for me if it was a monstrous <laughs> euphemism. Yeah, if he'd just wanked through the letterbox, it would have been... Easier to clean up. Mm. He's been stealing your boredom tasks, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, as well, which annoys me. Well, that's like, of course. Like, what if I'd wanted to clean my front door? Exactly. <laughs> what if you'd wanted to wank through your letterbox? <laughs> <laughs> which she might have wanted to do. Saving it for week seven. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of which, I'm Jen Offord, and on Sunday I cleaned my oven. Not a euphemism. Well done. I know. I said to Hannah and Sarah on Saturday, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. But I did. So there. That's how bored I was. <laughs> well done. Anyway, later on, I chat to Rebecca Schiller, co-founder and trustee of Birthrights, about what they're doing to help pregnant women during the coronavirus outbreak. And you can hear a longer version of this interview in this week's Sunday Chops. I catch up with Kaylee Clewellyn, writer and creator of award-winning BBC comedy drama series In My Skin. Rachel Reeves, now Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, talks to me about her book, The Women of Westminster, and in Jenny Off the Blocks, I recap on the many cancellations in women's sport. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we stretch the meaning of disaster a bit, but who gives a fuck? We watched Gone Air. Yay! (laughs) But first, football cash, gimme shelter, and Elvis on an upstairs patio. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we don't believe 5G is causing coronavirus because it's totally toilet paper manufacturers that did it. How can you people not see it? She's got it. She's got it bang Mm. on there. So March is finally over. And frankly, who thought that would ever happen? Which means we've moved on from judging what's in people's baskets to judging their trips to the outside world. It might sound glib to say that we're being given a small glimpse of what it might have been like to live behind the Iron Curtain, but having seen some stuff that's appeared on Village Facebook pages this weekend, I can say with some certainty that those people would 100% have grasped you up to the Stasi for owning the White Album. I just read one that a friend of mine sent me from her Village Facebook group out to you two, and it's horrible. It's batshit horrible. Yeah. But what about the actual police? How are they doing? Well... 
Before we get to that, I need to say, for the avoidance of any doubt, I absolutely agree that we should all be following the social distancing rules. We're so into them at Standard (laughs) Issue, we've been following them for two weeks longer than they've been in effect. Six years, six years. (laughs) It's been 84 years. (laughs) I also respect anyone who is still circulating in the outside world without personal protective equipment in order to serve their community. And this includes the overwhelming majority of the police. But with limited guidance coming to the police, we're in a situation where forces and indeed individual officers are being left to make calls on what constitutes an emergency pressing enough to leave the house. And that is an untenable situation. Let's take the case in which a woman, I'm not going to name her because I think she's entitled to that, was arrested after she was seen, and I quote, loitering on a station platform. An action that a few short weeks ago we'd have described as waiting for a train. (laughs) When she refused to tell British Transport Police who she was or the purpose of her journey, she was put in a cell for two days and taken to court without, it's worth noting, having received a mental health assessment. The woman was convicted of committing an offence under Schedule 21 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, fined £660 and ordered to pay a £66 victim surcharge, to who, and £85 in costs. And also, arguably, put in a situation where she was more likely to either catch or transmit COVID-19. Yeah. Now, it could be you're thinking that this is the right thing to do, and you're most welcome to that opinion. But if so, I'd ask you to consider that if we remove the element of coronavirus, a woman of colour being arrested for attempting to use public transport sounds more like the Jim Crow South, or the Handmaid's Tale, than Newcastle Town Centre. But don't just take it from me. The conviction was later quashed, because the law just doesn't back it up. Uh New guidance has now been published, so we'll wait and see what happens next. But this is just one, albeit the current worst, of many incidents where the words police overreach don't as much spring to mind as burst out of the top of your head surrounded by sparklers. Oh, I like sparklers. (laughs) While I absolutely agree that having a barbecue for 10 of your closest friends is a morally bankrupt thing to do in the current crisis, and pricks will always be pricks. An Elvis impersonator giving an impromptu concert from his balcony at 11am is not a cause for a police visit. If you must, a phone call will do. But seriously, the decision as to what is an emergency is in the eye of the beholder and individual experiences and prejudices cannot be allowed to get in the way of that. Everybody's life is exceptionally complicated, sad and scary in equal measure right now. And if we all continue to publicly judge, slash, threaten violence to, slash, shout, lock them up at other people, we only exacerbate the situation. I think it's really interesting. I don't know if you noticed yesterday that hashtag selfish pricks was uh, trending on Twitter. And I just kind of think like, I mean, I tweeted something yesterday saying like, stay in because look at the fucking state of the NHS. This is an awful situation for them to be in. But hashtag selfish pricks. I don't know. I keep hearing all this stuff about how, you know, hasn't this all brought out the best of us? And aren't we all like this lovely community? And aren't we doing all these great things for for morale and whatever? And it's like, dude, have you fucking looked at the internet? Because I can tell you that is not wholly true, is it? No, it's not all rainbows and clapping, that's for sure. I, I mean, it feels like there is a level to which some people are actively getting off on 
yeah. judging everybody else. And we were talking about this yesterday on Twitter, Jen. I think there's a level of FOMO in which people see people in a, a park and think, mm. well, why can't I be in a park? I mean, I get that. Why can't we all be in parks? But you know what? I've got a garden, so I have a small park. And some people don't. Yeah. And we should maybe consider that if you've got two small kids and a dog and no garden, then parks are vital for And you. also you are allowed to go out. The rules are that you are allowed to go out and take some exercise every day, which is what the vast majority of people are doing. There are obviously, as you said, pricks are going to be pricks. There are obviously some people, there are people around here clearly having a party on their balcony on Sunday. And I just thought, you bunch of cunts. And got on with my day. I don't know what you can do about that, that those people are going to continue to do what they do, aren't they? I think now we're at a point that we were last week with panic buying, that people going on Twitter and publicly moaning about it is creating the kind of atmosphere where it all feels kind of febrile and somebody's going to end up being punched in the face because, you know, they were washing their car or doing something that to all extents and purposes is very safe and possibly the thing that's stopping them going mad. It's time to refer to the brilliant Sarah Phelps who just wrote, cunt's gonna cunt, innit? Yep. I'm just gonna log out of this Skype call now. <laughs> <laughs> Job done. So lads, we're in the middle of a global pandemic what? and at the time, <laughs> no one's mentioned it recently. You don't watch the news for three weeks and, <laughs> and look what happens. At the time of recording, the UK has seen almost 5,000 deaths. Also at the time of recording, England and Wales has 9,000 of the 18,000 ventilators the NHS thinks we're going to need. And a Prime Minister in hospital because even he couldn't follow his own social distancing advice. I still trust him though, Jen. Yeah, absolutely. A Prime Minister who put the economy before the lives of, and I quote Dominic Cummings, allegedly, some pensioners before dramatically changing course on his woefully inadequate containment strategy and who heads up a government that first knew about this disease back in December. Still, who do you think should take the flak for the UK's economy tanking harder, faster and more spectacularly than cats? Nurses? Cats. Is it cats, Jed? I think probably footballers, don't you? I think it's cats. <laughs> but let's go with footballers. So, in yet another case of the British public making sound and reasonable criticisms this week, selfish, greedy, evil Premier League footballers were under scrutiny once again. Selfish, greedy, evil footballers who earn too much money and, again, I quote, refused to take a pay cut to relieve the burden on clubs caused by the current hiatus of their sport. It was announced last week that a number of clubs, including Spurs and Newcastle, hey, uh, Mike Ashley, you again, babes, uh -huh. <laughs> would furlough non-playing staff on 80% of their wages under the government-backed scheme before asking their millionaire players to take a pay cut. What a bunch of selfish cunts those players are, right, Matt Hancock, who publicly called them out on this last week? Why don't they take a pay cut like that nice Leo Messi at Barcelona? Oh yeah, nice Leo Messi who gets paid more than any athlete across all team sports and was convicted of tax fraud in 2017. He's a lovely boy. Um, very socially responsible. Anyway, well no, not really, for quite a few reasons actually. Number one, the combined worth of the owners of Premier League clubs stands at around £80 billion. You might argue that they could afford to pay all of their staff in full rather than rely on taxpayers' money. 
Number two, most Premier League footballers do quite a lot of charity and community work for which they don't seek praise or wang on about, they just quietly get on with it. And, you know, taxes are also a thing, assuming that they're paying them, obviously. Number three, yes, even though there is a huge disparity between the wages of individual footballers, of course, most of them do get paid too much, We already knew this and we didn't stop watching them because we found that morally disagreeable. We still bought the Sky Sports subscriptions, didn't we? Yes. So, number four. No other sport is being called upon to do the same. What about Formula One? They're all rich, aren't they? What about tennis? They're all rich, aren't they? What is it about the wealth of footballers specifically that we find so objectionable? And I do have my theories, but I might not go into them in detail now. Number five, and perhaps most importantly, until Friday last week, no one had actually asked them to take a pay cut. Still, what a bunch of wankers, right? What about the Russian oligarchs, is that how you say Oligarchs, it? Yeah. yeah. And the people who use offshore accounts to dodge taxes. Why, why isn't Matt Hancock asking them? I think because they're friends, but oh, that's no, just okay. a theory. Mm. I don't know, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously the Queen did her speech Sunday night. And I saw a lot of people saying, oh, it'd be better if she gave up a palace. And I thought, are you shitting me? Like, yeah, that's what that's what the NHS now needs now is, is having to fill in applications to put more things into a grade one listed building. We don't need a palace. We've got buildings. We've got other buildings that have got, like, I would imagine way more plug sockets and things like that in. That are <laughs> way more Excel better Center. set up, right? Oh, yeah. Don't worry, Queen. We'll just door widen everything and apply to the National Trust to see if that's okay. That Palace Hospital wouldn't be ready for another five years. Come on now, Hannah. If anything is going to save our NHS, it's applause and paperwork. Yeah. Oh, dear God. Personally, I thought that much as I loathe everything she stands for, I thought the Queen actually did a better job of coming across as a a human being than any of our politicians have so far. Yeah, she was good. Well done, Her Madge. Agreed. There is, as you'd expect, a steady stream of news making us damp-eyed with sadness at the moment, and not just the ever-rising loss of life. The never-ending supply of, I'm all right, Jack, fuck you and yours, to be found on social media, as previously discussed, and indeed on the streets. The reports of despicable fucking melts purposely spitting and coughing on key workers. The fact that a tiger in the Bronx Zoo has tested positive for COVID-19. It's tough on the heart and the head and the soul. And then there's the properly terrible situation of women and kids trapped in isolation with their abusers. And yes, of course, I know that men are victims of domestic violence too, which is equally fucking awful. But I've yet to see any reports of women who've snapped and slaughtered their entire family, including the dog, because of quarantine pressure. And you can probably tell which of those words I'd like to fuck off and never be used in this context again. According to the charity Refuge, there has so far been a 25% increase in calls to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline in a five-day period during the coronavirus lockdown. There was also an increase of around 150% in visits to its website, nationaldahelpline.org.uk, compared to the last week in February. This surge isn't a surprise and doesn't look to get any better, as high-profile campaigners believe domestic violence and potentially homicides will escalate as social distancing restrictions continue across the UK. Home Secretary Priti Patel has announced that victims may leave their homes during lockdown to seek help at refuges, although how they explain that to their abusers is another conundrum for them to solve solo. 
and domestic abuse experts are calling on the UK government to provide emergency funds to house those in need, which is particularly vital given that one in six refuges has had to close its doors due to, you guessed it, government funding cuts. No. It's almost like, I know, I know, I was surprised. It's almost like this crisis has been happening for years, for decades, rather than appearing at exactly the same time as COVID-19. The National Abuse Domestic Helpline is 0808 2000 247 and you can also contact the police on 999, then press 55 when prompted if you can't speak. Because of course, one effect of being locked down with your abuser is that someone vulnerable and in trouble is less likely to be able to make that emergency phone call. You can contact the National Domestic Abuse Helpline through its website, which has a quick exit button that ensures no record of the attempt is left on the phone. Those poor women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, and seriously, the Daily Mail can go fuck itself raw with the man snapped, <laughs> you know, pressure of lockdown headlines. It's just obscene. Oh, it's the new isolated incident, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, I, I just... know I've, I've killed five women this week already, but it's been hard on me. <laughs> We've all got a lot more time on our hands, Hannah. Yeah. Absolutely. We've got to use it somehow, haven't we? Um, would you like some good news? Yes, please. Oh, please. All right. So how about Matt Hancock does something right this week by giving the go-ahead for women and girls to take abortion pills at home up to 10 weeks into their pregnancy without having to attend a clinic? Matt Hancock? Yeah. Under the new rules, which last for two years, these pills may be prescribed by medical professionals in order to assist those who are unable to attend clinics in person following a telephone or e-consultation with a clinician. The Department of Health and Social Care confirmed last week, and this follows the publication of these changes the week before, which were then withdrawn on the same day. Um, oh, that cause... sounds more like the government I know. <laughs> I know and The hate. government we know and love. <laughs> yeah. um, However, guess where these rules won't apply? Oh, God. Is there a bit of sea in between us? <laughs> That's right, guys. Northern Ireland. Oh, I forgot where? they were part of us. Oh, no, wait a minute. That yeah. wasn't me. That was our entire government. Despite it being quite well documented that they are. But anyway, um, like from a historical context, but. You know. Anyway, in Northern Ireland, curiously, women and girls will be able to take one pill at home, but not the second, which they have to take at a clinic or hospital. I don't understand that, but um, anyway, as ever, if you want to help those women continue to access safe abortions, please chuck any quids you may have spare at the Abortion Support Network, which you will find online at asn.org.uk. And thanks, sweet fancy Moses, for the animals, eh? If you've not caught the marauding goats of Landudno on social media, then please seek them out. (laughs) Hannah's doing heart symbols, and rightly so, because taking advantage of the deserted streets because of the coronavirus lockdown, a posse of great horned goats has moved into town and is running riot. I say riot, they've nibbled some hedges and wandered into some front gardens. Getting in on the animal act, the already fairly tame deer of East London's Harold Hill have set up a grazing site on a housing estate and appear to be enjoying the attentions and proffered tidbits of the estate's inhabitants. Surely Hannah's much longed for monkey overlords will be hitting the mean streets of Cambridge Come at on. any moment. Come on, monkey overlords! I'm also going to give a schadenfreude shout out to the American woman who, for shits and giggles, turned her face into a potato during a staff video <laughs> conference. 
then couldn't get it to change back. So I had to sit out the entire meeting as a sad shame spud. Lovely stuff. I like this. More good news, please, Hannah. I do, but briefly, I just want to add that I saw some photographs yesterday of a coyote on Michigan Avenue in the Chicago. Animals. Yes. Just wandering up. It's incredible. But yes, indeed, I also have good news. Lots of it. Firstly, following on from my letter to my MP demanding the release of pregnant women from jail, it's happened. Notice how I made it sound like that was a, re- yeah, a result well done, of Hannah. my letter. Yeah, I liked that, yeah. Doesn't matter. It's done and it was absolutely the right thing to do. Over in Ireland, T-Shop, Leo Varadka has reactivated his medical credentials and is going to work for the Irish Health Service one day a week, which is pretty much the definition of hands-on leadership. Also about to roll their sleeves up and get to work for the NHS are a wee army of volunteers who signed up via Good Sam. These include one of my cousins, who we are all very proud of. If one of them is also you, dear listener, I'm proud of you too. Friend of the show, Claire Allen, who was suggesting some good reads to get us through social isolation, had some good news of her own last week when one of her novels, Her Name Was Rose, made it onto the USA Today bestseller list. Round of applause for Claire. And finally, in my good news roundup, Keir Starmer is now leader of the Labour Party. Thank fuck! Yeah, that that was tense. It was tense. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where coronavirus stopping a lot of other news being reported allows us to spot some sexism that's been hiding in plain sight. Let's journey for the second time in a row to the Daily Mail and take a quick look at its long-running Then and Wow feature. Now then, you might well be thinking, but Mick, Then and Wow, and I quote, unveils the women who look better now than ever and serves as a celebration of how gorgeous women can look as they get older, therefore tilting on its axis the mainstream belief that ageing renders women at the very least asexual, if not entirely invisible. Could this be a good thing? To which I say... Absolutely not. Objectifying women over the age of 50 is not the answer. And to be honest, I don't even remember the question, except to know that stop defining women by arbitrary beauty standards is always the answer. Oh, and how does the male celebrate such older women? A rhapsody on the beauty of laughter lines and wrinkles, perhaps? A poem to the glitter and gleam of silver strands? Nope. Basically, it slags off a photo of them when they were younger and captions the one of them the age they are now with something along the lines of, yeah, wood and a dirty tissue emoji. <laughs> I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. So yes, this week it's Angela Bassett looking fit as fuck at 61 because she's famously looked like a car crash for most of her adult <laughs> life. Except, no, what? No. Now, please excuse me. I must return to my pillow screaming. Yeah. I'm joined on the phone by Rebecca Schiller, co-founder and trustee of Birthrights, also author of a book that I have recommended on this very podcast, The No Guilt Pregnancy Plan. So, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's nice to be doing something that involves talking to, to somebody who isn't a member of my immediate family. So, thank you. <laughs> yes, I think, I think everyone's feeling that a bit at the moment, aren't they? So, just to start with, can you tell us a little bit about who birthrights are and what you guys do so birthrights is the human rights in childbirth charity we've been going since the beginning of 
2013. And we are founded by a group of midwives, obstetricians, anaesthetists, lawyers and maternity service users who all sort of came together united by the belief that the human rights uh, principles and the legal framework that gives them a very positive kind of power could be used to improve pregnancy and birth for all people in the UK and to um, particularly protect those made most vulnerable by, by their circumstances. So we have been working to do a few things from training um, frontline um, midwives, doctors on um, how human rights can improve the kind of care that they want to provide. We provide advice to uh, pregnant women, to healthcare professionals. Um, we do research, we try and find out what's going on on the ground, and then we use all of that to go back to the policymakers and to try and ensure that our maternity systems and services are um, structured in a way that is going to protect the rights of, of, of pregnant women in the UK and um, give them um, safe, respectful, dignified care throughout the period of pregnancy, birth and immediately Afterwards. So the reason I'm chatting to you today is as a podcast, we've been trying to chat to different charities who are sort of taking a more active role in what's going on at the moment mm-hmm. in the UK with the coronavirus and stuff like that. And you guys have been pretty busy in the in the media over the last couple of weeks uh, because coronavirus sort of impacts on pregnant women in two kind of more general ways. Number one, pregnant women were sort of I guess quite unexpectedly or quite suddenly placed in the high risk category or vulnerable group mm. for coronavirus not because we're told there's any specific research or evidence to, to indicate that pregnant women are particularly vulnerable but just as a yeah. precautionary measure but that is still you yeah. know giving pregnant women quite a lot of anxiety understandably and at a very anxious Absolutely. time anyway and number two because we are pretty massive users of the NHS which is obviously really, really under the cosh at the moment. So there's been a lot of stories in the news in the last week, particularly about the latter and how that impacts on the NHS might affect pregnant women who are due to give birth soon. And obviously just with their sort of general appointments. Can you tell us a little bit about where the land lies with this? And does it depend very much on where in the country you are? I think it's it's true to say that that this will be affecting all pregnant women at the moment and 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 all those who've, who've given birth very recently i don't think there's anybody who who is finding that 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 completely unaffected by this mm-hmm. however you're quite right what exactly is happening varies from actually from person to person from hospital to hospital from gp surgery to gp um, and there is some national guidance kind of emerging, emerging and being developed, which gives an idea of, of best practice. But I think because the situation on the ground is changing so rapidly and also because different areas of the country have very different setups and some, you know, everybody's already coming into a central hospital to have their appointments and give birth and others. It's mainly sort of community based and kind of small birth centres. And those those challenges of, of reconfiguring and rearranging services really vary from place to place and I, and I think also it depends on individuals you know what you know lots of pregnant women um having really straightforward pregnancies and are, and, and are in really good health but but others have got complicating factors and so they will be getting different advice which is all to say it's quite confusing and anxiety inducing and I think that's something that we're hearing a lot and I'm hearing a lot from from pregnant women that a, a lot of uh, of women feel very worried at the moment and then they're worried about how worried they're feeling and I think there is just a, you know a message out there that this is a difficult a difficult situation for everybody and you've just got to cut yourself some slack if it's making you 
you, you feel anxious because it, it is essentially anxiety inducing. But there have been some there have been some particular things that have worried women who are about to give birth and one of those is about birth partners. We've had lots of people contact birth rights concerned that they've been told they won't be allowed to have a birth partner for uh, a birth that's in a few weeks or that they're unlikely to be able to. They might be due in a couple of months. I mean, we don't know what the situation is going to be. I'm Mm. having a baby in nine weeks time i was going to say allegedly but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know where that came from um, i mean she's Just, there she is there <laughs> keeping me awake constantly yeah. well we don't know what the situation is going to be in nine weeks time or even a week's time because nope. as you say the situation is moving so rapidly i'm in london which is obviously quite badly impacted at the moment but then there is kind of there's kind of an argument that Obviously, midwives and hospital staff are at massive risk of contracting this virus and becoming ill. And would we not rather protect them and protect the number of staff available to work to make sure there are the resources to deliver those babies rather than have birth partners? Should the onus not be on just making sure there are enough staff to do what they need to do? I think there there absolutely needs to be a focus on all of those things. Um, I think the personal protective equipment, there needs to be a real focus on that. Um, Midwives and doctors who are in hospitals are going to be exposed to people who um, are testing positive. That might be, you know, pregnant women who have the coronavirus will still be giving birth. So birth partners aside, we need to make sure that midwives and obstetricians and anaesthetists have been given really good guidance and really good equipment because whether or not a woman has a birth partner, they are going to be exposed to the coronavirus is going to be, it already is in hospitals. I think what's interesting about birth partners is there's so much around childbirth that can sound like it's on the sort of nice to have but non-essential list, going from the kind of whale music and candles (laughs) all the way through to birth partners. And I've seen quite a lot of coverage that said, you know, actually it's only in the last sort of 20 years that, that women didn't, you know, women always were just coming in from giving birth by themselves. You know, fathers have only recently been introduced into maternity units. It's a very easy thing to strip out of the system. That's not true. I mean, there was a period of time in which women were mainly coming into hospitals and giving birth without a partner. And, and that was generally a time in which birth was felt to be quite emotionally unsafe for women and one of the reasons that that birth partners have you know risen in popularity in those hospital settings is because it's been essential to women's emotional and physical well-being and of course before we were all giving birth in hospitals nobody was giving birth by by themselves but there's also a lot of evidence that shows that having a trusted birth partner with you during birth it doesn't just improve how you feel it does improve how you feel but it actually seems to have a profound impact on everything from shortening your labour reducing the need for pain relief, improving the um, APGAR scores of babies at birth. So it's actually quite an important protective factor. And I think particularly when we're looking at a service that's already really stretched, you know, maternity services, midwives were always, you know, have have been increasingly, we know there's a shortage of midwives in the system. They're not often able to provide the kind of emotional and physical support that that women need to get them through labour and birth. And they're often in the immediate postnatal period you know they're really stretched in terms of providing enough care for women who say have had an epidural or cesarean aren't able to reach their baby to feed them aren't able to reach their water jug so stripping out 
birth partners from that really exposes women to some emotional and physical risks. Of course, there may be certain situations and each trust will have to make those decisions as the situation evolves. But I think it would be a very, very extreme situation. And it would be a very sort of draconian response to that extreme situation to remove birth partners, because actually, they bring in themselves huge, huge benefits. And they take the pressure off a system that is already um, under huge strain. From my own experience, Pregnant women are obviously having lots of appointments cancelled, which is understandable. You, yeah. can, you can see why that is happening. But from my perspective, I have a, th- a thing. I, don't, I think it's not altogether uncommon and uh, I've been assured that it's not something to be unduly anxious about. But I have low pap A hormone. So I've right. been having like extra scans and stuff just to make sure that she's cooking OK. Mm. And happy to report that everything appears to be fine. Obviously, even if you haven't been told that there is a specific reason why you need to have these appointments, but if you have mm. been told that you should have these extra appointments, again, it is quite anxiety inducing to have mm. those appointments cancelled. Should pregnant women be worried about that or, or should we just sort of trust that those appointments would, you know, if we really needed them, they would be happening? I mean, I think this is one where it's really important that um, everybody knows who they can talk to about this. You may not be having as many physical appointments, but I would hope that every pregnant woman has a number to call where they can talk to um, a midwife. And that may involve calling the maternity unit, uh, the numbers often on, on your notes. If you are worried that there are appointments treatments, additional scans that you're having that were for a reason and those have been cancelled and you want to know what the rationale for that is. I think it's very reasonable to expect the midwife that, that you would normally see at your appointments to talk to you about that. There are, of course, lots of comforting things. That there are lots of variations around the country and around the world about things like scans. So, you know, in this country, a lot of women only have two scans. In other countries, um, it is routine for women to have eight scans. So there often isn't an agreed international best practice. Um, Often these things are guesses. And of course, in maternity care, the system is set up to be as overcautious often as possible. And actually, there's there's a lot of evidence that there are perhaps additional unnecessary scans in some people's cases or additional unnecessary interventions. Quite how that relates to individuals, um, I think, has to be communicated between a midwife and and a woman. And I would say to anyone, you know, it is, of course, we don't want to be burdening the NHS at the moment, but you remain very, very important. Your care is very important. And if you're worried that you're getting left behind or forgotten, don't be frightened to put your head above the parapet to pick up the the phone and say, I am concerned about this and this is why, and I need it to be explained to me. And um, I think that is very, very reasonable. And it is difficult. I find it difficult to, to advocate for myself like that anyway. I find it even more difficult when I'm pregnant and I would find it I'm sure even more difficult if I was pregnant in the middle of a a global pandemic because it's hard not to to sort of put your hand up and feel that you're making it all about you and it's a big big situation but actually you are still super super important so in your case you know if you can get your sort of community midwife whoever you've been seeing for your appointments if you can get on the phone if you've been going to hospital to whoever is the lead midwife there and ask to speak to them about that then I think that would be a very reasonable thing to do. So Rebecca finally obviously you guys are doing a sterling job helping women access advice and you know advocating for women how can we help you because I imagine you're you know on the lookout for donations and support. 
Yeah, I mean, really, I, I can dress it up in lots of different ways, but really what we could do with this is more money. You know, we're a small organisation. Um, we we look like we're quite a big organisation often because um, we have a big impact and we're, we're, we're doing lots of different things. But we've got five part-time members of staff who are all now also homeschooling their children <laughs> while working. Um, and that is a big challenge so we've put on our, our website which is birthrights.org.uk on the home page there is a link to click for information about COVID-19 and how that affects pregnancy and birth and also if you want to donate to us we're one of those charities that if you give us money it's really going to the work that we do we have such a small team we don't have an office we all work virtually so that the funds we raise are really effectively used to support women to give advice to train midwives and doctors and we're already looping all of the information that pregnant women and frontline staff are giving us straight back into the sort of high level policy discussions we're having so that we can push the right buttons to try and ensure that the national guidance and the local guidance is directing maternity services in a way that will protect women and babies physically but also emotionally at a time they really need it so yeah give us a cast if you can we could we could really do with it so we are on twitter at birthrights.org our website is birthrights.org.uk and if you search for birthrights on facebook we've got a really good facebook page and on our website we've got loads of really easy to read simple and clear fact sheets about rights in maternity care and so if you've got questions on everything from specifically this situation to more generally uh, the website is a really good place to to find that information and if you like um, reading long fact sheets we've got some videos as well yeah please use those resources because they're there for you Rebecca thank you so much for chatting to me and thank you so much to Birthrights for doing what you're doing we're really pleased to be able to sort of do what we can um, and would just also I guess say if you are worried if you've got a situation we have an advice service it's completely free and if you go to our website we're there to within you know a couple of days try and answer your your queries and um, with our kind of expert advice excellent Rebecca thank you Thanks very much. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Kaylee Llewellyn, writer and creator of award-winning BBC comedy drama series In My Skin, which I must insist you all go and watch as soon as you finish listening to this. Kaylee, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on and for breaking my heart, but we'll get to that later. First of all, tell us a bit about In My Skin. Well, we've been calling it a darkly comic coming of age story but I've had a few tweets being like how dare you call this a comedy (laughs) so maybe I should just say a coming of age drama about a 16 year old girl who's leading a double life and at school pretending to be this run-of-the-mill happy-go-lucky teenager with a normal family when all the while the reality is that her dad is a abusive alcoholic and her mum is sectioned in a mental facility a few minutes away from her school it is an emotional roller coaster it's heartbreaking gut punching and um, you know it is a comedy because it's piss funny it's based on your own childhood how true to your actual experiences are beth's very true really it was sort of one of those things that i didn't have to invent much you know there's that kind of cliche of people saying oh i wrote this project and it was just like cutting the bottom off a bag of grain and letting it all pour out have you heard that saying before i haven't but i like it i had heard it and thought oh whatever 
Um, <laughs> but actually, <laughs> writing this show was exactly like that. It was, dare I say, easy. It was cathartic. It, it, it's basically like written therapy for me. I'm just wondering, why did you decide to make it a comedy? Because, for me, the most exciting storytelling is things that can accurately reflect life. There's all different styles of TV. There's escapism TV and fantasy or like really hard-hitting drama. It's almost like the car crash that you can't look away from. And I love all of those things too. But the things that really stick in my claw and I can't forget about them are the kind of TV shows that can portray something and I watch it and go, I've lived that. Or I know those people. That feels like something I've seen. And that, to me, is something that holds both comedy and drama mm-hmm. in its hand because that is life. They they always walk side by side. And there's this like saying of um, poverty porn. And sometimes you can watch these shows about working class people and it's just non-stop <laughs> misery. Um, people feeling, you know, sad and crying or screaming in the street. And actually being from those places, that's not how we live because you're just getting on with it. You're yeah. not thinking, oh, my life is miserable. You're thinking, oh, this is life. Might as well have a laugh. And that's certainly what, you know, my family were like as well. Like, I don't know. Then I don't know if this is a particularly Welsh thing because my friends do make fun of me for this, this sort of pragmatism. And just like, oh, well, I might as well get on with it. So it's just the way I was raised two things growing up being bullied at school being called like fat dyke constantly had to learn the ability to make people laugh to deflect mm-hmm. you know it's like a tale as old as time that people who have been bullied learn to be funny because then you can sort of get the upper hand so that's a skill i've been honing a long time but then also at home if a, bi- a big kind of storm was brewing between my parents getting the idea that if, if i can make them laugh if i can distract them if i can be funny if i can be like shiny and put on a show I can stop this from happening so I've been doing that all my life and so now when it comes to writing a show just in my mind it's going to be funny but it's not only going to be funny it's going to be I hope real and gritty too but whatever balloon of tension that I've blown up I always aim to pierce with a laugh and you do it brilliantly it moves so smoothly from like I was punking like a goose to then bawling my eyes out because the thing that is heartbreaking is Bethan's just so on her own yeah she's basically leading this double life pretending to be a normal fucked up teenager not pretending she is actually a normal fucked up teenager but she's not just hiding all her family stuff from everyone she's actively lying about having a boring middle-class home Mm -hmm. life. It's only because I guess those lies have started to come so easy to her that she survives. They just just spill out. And it just made me think, knowing obviously this is based on your childhood, why didn't you tell anyone? Because I I didn't know anyone else who was going through what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And now as a grown-up, I have the, the foresight to know that probably quite a few kids in my school might have had similar stories, but because no one talks about mental health we still don't talk about it as much as we should now and it was non-existent 17 years ago so I thought well I better hide then otherwise we're all going to be ostracized and either I'll be bullied which is bad or they'll make fun of my mum and that's unimaginable the idea of them making fun of, of a parent of mine so I better just keep it to myself and went to great lengths to do that and also knowing I mean aside from my mum's mental health the way my father behaved being an abusive alcoholic 
I knew from a very young age, without even seeing many other examples of, of different family lives, I knew in my gut that it was wrong what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was, well, the way I interpret it was, it's shameful what goes on at home and no one should know. So I just hid it. And I basically had, I, would, I think I had a stomachache for about six years. Oh, God. Just constantly being anxious. I gave myself like IBS, just constantly being wound up like no one can know, no one can know. And then going home and it's a different kind of stress of, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then I sort of grew up and I moved to London when I was 20 and I went to university and I, I got a flat of my own just my, my stomach aches went and I was like oh god because I'm safe and I'm not lying anymore yeah you were on eggshells wherever you were treading yeah and I, I there's also a question around you know how good were my lies because at 16 I thought I had everyone fooled but looking back now I bet I did I'm from Cardiff it's not a big place I bet there were teachers who had an idea and I bet some of my friends had an idea too and they just were too kind to tell me well, you say that. I've written down in capital letters. How did her teachers not spot anything? And I kind of feel weird asking about Bethan because obviously I'm actually asking about you. But yeah, seriously, mm-hmm. how do teachers not spot anything? I don't know, but I do have this memory. When I was about eight, I was in primary school and I had this teacher called Mrs Ansell who I, I really liked. She was sort of like this sort of cosy kind of strict woman but chubby and cozy and safe feeling if that makes sense and and maybe I liked having the discipline yeah I always remember this it was just one day she said to me I want you to stay behind after class so all the other kids filed out and I stayed and she pulled out this bag from under her desk and she brought me a pair of roller skates that belonged to her daughter that her daughter had grown out of and five hardback Ina Blyton famous five books like I can still see them sort of these like maroon red hardback books and she said these are for you don't tell anyone I've given them to you and that that was the end of it but as a grown-up I wonder like why me what did she know why did she why did she think I needed books and roller skates and the other kids didn't yeah and I don't know the answer but you know I wonder if someone like her Mrs Ansel you know she did have an idea some of the stuff that Bethan's mum Trina says to Bethan is like fucking hell I just can't wrap my head around the awfulness of it but it it doesn't matter because Bethan loves her mum so much now Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of the lines that are in in my skin got said to you was it hard to put all of that out there it was easy to write it Mm. when it was just me at home and I didn't know that the show was going to be made because as a writer 99% of the projects I'd made up until this point, I poured my heart and soul into and then they never went anywhere. So I sort of wrote this kind of with the same mindset. And then obviously this was the one that got picked up. And and then that's when it got difficult because people say, write what you know. And I'd done that and I was telling my story. But then you have this realisation that as a writer, it's never only your story. Uh You're making the choice to tell your family's story too. And they didn't necessarily sign up for that. So it was difficult in the sense of maybe making my mum vulnerable too because in this show we're seeing Trina, the the character of the mum, in a hypermanic state where she's had a full breakdown and she gets sectioned and she's very, very ill for sort of six weeks. But then in reality that ends and, you know, in real life my mum would have come out of hospital and she would have returned to being my mum uh, maybe for a, a year or two years before another episode would happen again. And in those times, my mum worshipped me and I always knew 
we didn't have any money and we often didn't have much food and the bailiffs were always at the door. But my mum always made me feel very loved. She always said to me, I love you more than anything. I'll do anything for you. And I knew that. And she used to work two jobs because my lazy layabout bastard of a father couldn't be relied to bring any money in. So she would work two jobs at an old people's home and then at a photography click, it was called, which where they like develop photographs. Mm-hmm. So she could keep the house up and give me things. Like I, I wanted to go to stagecoach when I was little and I hadn't shown her the leaflet because I was afraid of asking her to spend money. I used to do that with my mum. Yeah. yeah. She found it going through my bedroom and she brought it to me and said, why didn't you show me this? And I said, said that. I said, I didn't want to make you feel bad that we don't have money. And she was like, no, you go and I'm going to find the cash. And she did. And, and you know, she, she would work hard so that I could have the things I wanted. So anyway, all that's to say that as much as there are these like really extreme things being said, it's almost like I want to put a caveat out with the show and go, but trust me, she adored me and, and you're watching her when she's ill and her filter's been removed and we all have thoughts go through our head at times that we would never say to the people we love. Yeah. Or even we think them and go, God, I don't even feel that don't even know why i had that thought and the unfortunate thing when you get ill is the filter's completely removed and you spew all of those things and so i don't know when my mum is well i then can't hold those things against her i want the audience to understand that it's nuanced if that makes sense has your mum seen the show she's seen the pilot which she saw about a month after it came out which was back in october 2018 it came out she'd been quite ill that year she'd been sectioned six times um, the year the pilot came out in, in one year which is more than ever in my life just bizarre timing and weirdly we had been filming the mental hospital scenes in the hospital where my mum was sectioned oh oh wow that yeah that must have been a bit of a head fuck by pure coincidence this one hospital in wales had a empty wing that people could film from and it just so happened to be the same hospital so absolutely bizarre but anyway she finally got out of hospital and was able to watch it on tv and i was sort of waiting with bated breath in london for her feedback and finally the phone rang and she she said i i think it's brilliant i love you i'm so proud of you but in terms of the series she doesn't have a computer (laughs) so i can't send her links to watch it in advance she doesn't have bbc3 so she's not been able to watch the box set so (laughs) so it, it started last night on bbc1 but that was the pilot she'd already seen Right. Normally I'd say go to my sister's house and you can watch it at Becky's house, but obviously Corona means she can't. So basically she hasn't seen it yet. She's going to have to watch it weekly from from next week. Were you expecting her to be proud of you, if that's not a stupid question? Um, No, I wasn't expecting that. I was worried that she was going to be upset that I'd told her story for her, really. Because it's exposing and people don't necessarily want all their dirty laundry aired. And I've made the choice to do it, but it doesn't mean she wanted to. So, um, yeah, I, I, I thought she might be upset with me and I was going to have to sort of explain myself and try to make her understand why it was important to me. But I didn't have to. So it was uh, the relief was like <laughs> full body. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can breathe again. I was very, very uh, pleased. Well, Trina, the, the character who obviously is based on your mum or is your mum, it's very real, it's very gritty and dark, but she is incredibly sympathetic. Whereas the the dad, Dill's character, who you've mentioned about the alcoholism and domestic abuse, he's he's a, a lot less sympathetic. He is mm-hmm. a, a grade A arsehole. 
And the domestic abuse is something you wrote about for us back in 2014. So I wondered if if that story was one you've been wanting to tell for a long time. Yes, definitely. And I think it's one I'll keep on telling Mm. in different guises because much like mental health, I I don't think there's enough of it on screen. And I, I also don't think there's enough of it told perhaps in the way that I was talking about doing within my skin where you can kind of portray it hand in hand with comedy because I think sometimes when it comes to domestic abuse we've all watched you know some gritty dramas about it and been utterly moved and devastated and thought god that was harrowing I don't know if I want to do that again anytime soon Mm -hmm. which makes domestic violence a difficult subject matter sometimes so I would love to keep talking about it but in a way where maybe it's lighter at times and you get relief and you might cry but you might also laugh that that's my aim but with his character in particular I wanted to I didn't want to sugarcoat it and I didn't want to suddenly make him like well this is a BBC comedy so I better make him likable I didn't want to go down that route but I wanted to for myself try to understand him a bit more through writing this and I, and I think I did I achieved that because sort of sitting down to write Dill when I was thinking, right, no one ever thinks that they're in the wrong. Mm -hmm. My dad didn't think he was being a bastard. In his mind, I mean, more than anyone's mind, he was always right. He was morally right. If he did something, it was because someone had pushed him to it and that was on them to realise they shouldn't have pushed him to it. Yeah. Things like that. So approaching that character with the mindset of he thinks he's making the right choices forced me to understand the man a bit more. And it doesn't mean I agree with him or like him or would act that way myself but it made him slightly more 3d in my mind i suppose and i tried to find that they're they're few and far between but there's a couple of moments in the series where i wanted to show a softness from him to bethan like when when he uh reads the poem out in episode two and doesn't say much but then he just goes she gets that from me yeah and that's something my dad used to say and i knew it was his way of saying i'm proud of you (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. he, obviously he had to attribute it to his own skills at the same time as he said it when she's ironing and he says when I yeah. hear you talking like that and it's, he is really proud and it's that yeah. it's that thing of he's such an he's such a cunt to her and to her mum <laughs> but it still matters to Bethan that he notices her yeah I think that that word from him it means it means more than anyone else and yep. I think for that a sort of I was estranged from my dad for the last 10 years of his life. He died in 2015. But at his funeral, one of his friends told me that he kept a article in his... He had a rag and bone truck. He was a rag and bone man. He kept an article in his car. I'd been in the newspaper in 2012. I'd made the front, front page of the South Wales Echo for winning a writing competition. And he'd kept it in his car the whole time. And apparently he always used to show it to people even though we weren't speaking. Um, And I just, I want to try and get that across. He's not 100% a villain. Also, I think my dad was probably mentally ill too. It's just, you wouldn't accept help or go to a doctor. It comes from somewhere. You know that saying, hurt people hurt people? Yeah. I think that was him. Yeah. The acting is incredible across the board. Yeah. But Gabrielle Creevy as Bethan and Joe Hartley as Trina are just astonishing. Mm-hmm. How did it feel for you to watch it as a completed show? It's quite, it's like goosebumps, you know? Um, we're so lucky. Our, our casting director, Rachel Sheridan, is amazing, but she also just so happens to be one of my best friends. So she kind of, she goes above and beyond anyway, but I think she worked her fingers to the bone finding Mm -hmm. 
Gabby in particular because she's young. So, you know, to cast the role of Bethan, Rachel was trawling every high school and youth club in Wales, taking open submissions from anyone. They didn't have to have any kind of training or any credits. And actually, the day she found Bethan, it was quite, um, Gabby, it was quite early on in the audition process. And I got, it was just first round auditions and the rest of us weren't going to be there until we called. And I just got this text from Rachel saying, I found her. And she sent me a picture and, and the um, so real. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I thought Gabby was too pretty. I was like, that's not what I look like. She's way too pretty. And Rachel was like, can you just trust me? And then Gabby came for her recall and she walked into the room and it was like, it floored me. I was like, oh my God, that's her. Her eyes are phenomenal. Oh, she's so good. When we were shooting it, I was on set every day and there would just be this process of me like wanting to strip away dialogue. Because I'd be like, doesn't her eyes say it? You don't need the words. Mm. Her eyes are saying it, which is, I mean, how wonderful is that? And then um, Joe Hartley on the other end. So lucky that they coincidentally look quite alike anyway. And yeah, she she came in for her first audition. It was on the anniversary of her dad's death. I remember her telling us that she walked in and uh, she performed. We, we had her do the car washing scene from the pilot. And when she finished the scene, she looked at the panel and all five of us were weeping. Yeah. And she was like, oh, did you like that then? <laughs> and it was just, it was a bit of magic. She, Jo has this ability as a performer to fully lose every element of herself. She just becomes the role. There was one occasion on set, which is the final scene of the whole series, that when we shot it, every single person was crying. The extras were crying. Our <laughs> DOP was crying. It was just, I don't know, the pair of them together is, is a piece of magic. I feel the stars aligned to get us those two. Oh, they're so good. Is there anything you wish had been in place or that young Kaylee had known that would have made any of this easier or less isolating? I wish this TV show existed mm. or, or TV shows like it because that's what I was doing when I was a kid. I was watching telly. Like the idea of therapy and, I don't know, kind of centres where people can go to talk about this stuff. I, those are amazing options to have and to be able to use. But I don't know that me in my council house in Cardiff, if I would have known about them or if I would have gone or if I thought, I don't know, I think I might have thought, oh, this, I don't know, this is a bit wanky. I'm going to get made fun of for this. But what I did do was watch TV and get so much comfort or knowledge or, I don't know, jokes, escapism from telly. And so if I could have watched a show like this, I would have gone, oh, my God, I feel seen. And so in writing this, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted some other people going through it to watch it and feel like someone gets it. I think what you've created is incredibly powerful for all the reasons you've just touched on. But also because Bethan's Bethan's also a normal girl. Her life hasn't stopped. She's among all of this eggshells at home and, and being the carer at home. She's... She's trying to grow up. She's trying to explore her sexuality, mainly with Poppy, the school's most popular girl. But she's also trying to work out who the fuck she is. And I think Mm -hmm. that normality is so important if you're going through something, anything like this. Definitely, yeah. You want to get out of the house and, like, crack on. (laughs) I think that should be on a T-shirt once coronavirus is put off. (laughs) Get out of the house and crack on. Crack on. (laughs) Yeah, you do, though, don't you? And, like, I think it's the same thing when people go through grief. And oftentimes, sometimes people do want to just sort of be alone at home. But oftentimes people are like, actually, I want to be at work. And you, and their boss is like, please take time off. You need time. And you're like, 
no, I fucking don't. I don't need to be lying in my bed being miserable all day long. I need to distract yeah. myself and be here and not think about it for five minutes, please. So, yeah, she's. I think Bethan's just like, right, that's all shit, but can I get laid? <laughs> Will there be a second series? Well, we're waiting to hear. I certainly have a second series outlined and I I know where the story's going, but we'll have to wait and see if the BBC want it. They better fucking do. I'm going to go around and bite the back of the knees. I'm going to email them that now. (laughs) (laughs) And what else are you working on at the moment? So um, Killing Eve series four is my main focus right now. And I'm also writing on a new BBC One drama called Chloe, which is going to be coming out in 2021. So I'm writing an episode of that. And then I've got two new shows in development that the scripts have been commissioned for. So I'm working on those too. That is all very exciting. Kaylee, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I cannot... I cannot stress enough that everyone should go and watch In My Skin. Either binge it on the iPlayer, which is what I did, or it's on every week on BBC One at the moment. Be there or miss out, as the old saying goes. Exactly, that's your other T-shirt. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team at Standard Issue UK or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan. And I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us. Look at our faces. I'm joined on the phone by Rachel Reeves, Labour MP for Leeds West and author of Women in Westminster, the MPs who changed politics. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Jen. Thank you for joining me in what I imagine is quite a busy time for you. Quite a lot going on in the world at the moment. I'm sure people listening will be aware. There is, so it's nice to talk about something other than uh, <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Well, then let's talk about your book, Rachel. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, 1918, February 1918, was the first time some, but not all women, got the right to vote. And later that year, there was a general election. And shortly before the election, a a short act of parliament was passed, which enabled women to stand for that forthcoming election. Uh, And so in uh, December 1918, the first general election took place where women could stand and where women could vote. But because the Act of Parliament was passed only shortly before the election, very few women were able to stand as candidates in that general election. And uh, indeed, only one woman won her seat that year. And that woman was Constance Markovitz. Mm -hmm. uh, And she was a candidate for the Sinn Féin party. So as a tradition of that party, she didn't take her seat in Parliament. She was also in prison for high treason at the time. So even if she had wanted to, it might have been a little bit tricky. Mm. Uh, But that was the first woman to um, be elected as an MP. And a a year later, the first woman took her seat in Parliament. And that was in a a by-election. And Nancy Astor became the first woman uh, to take her seat in, in Parliament as an MP. So the book is basically you're sort of chronicling those that first 100 years of women in Parliament, and you start with Nancy Astor, as as you the said. The book starts with the book starts with Nancy Astor, and it, it takes you through the, uh, the the experiences of those early women in Parliament. And uh, Nancy Astor once said that pioneers are often picturesque figures, but they're also very lonely ones. And I think that was very much her experience 
and the experience of the other women in those early years in, in Parliament. For almost two years, Nancy Astor was the only woman MP out of 650 members of Parliament. And so you can imagine that was a very lonely experience uh, indeed. Uh, just um, around two years later, a woman called Margaret Wintringham was elected for the Liberal Party. And although Nancy Astor was a Tory and Wintringham was uh, a Liberal, Nancy Astor refused to go and campaign for the Conservatives in that by-election where Margaret Wintringham was a candidate because she said that more women were needed in Parliament from all political persuasions. And the two of them became very close friends and, and worked together on various pieces of legislation, including on the equal guardianship of children, which in 1926, for the first time, gave mothers uh, rights over their children. Because before then, if you divorced or separated from your husband, you had no rights over your child whatsoever they were the property of their father and uh, th that was called the first piece of feminist legislation and it was uh, it was the, the 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 brainchild really of margaret wintry and working with nancy astor and also some of the uh, labor mps who had been elected by the 1920s hmm. so you cover obviously a lot of women over the course of the book from sort of astor and, and universal suffrage and and the fight for equal pay with Barb, uh, by barbara castle and then sort of more recent battles like the the excellent Harriet Harman uh, and her Equalities Act and up to sort of now with Stella Creasy and her sort of bid for maternity leave. And there's a couple of things that sort of struck me that there are a few things that haven't actually changed that much, despite obviously a huge amount of progress in the last 100 years. The first of which I want to talk about is, so we've had two female prime ministers now, obviously the last was Theresa May. And the level of sexism that she faced in the media, I think from colleagues, you know, party politics aside, what do you think about that? Do you think she was treated fairly or do you think she was vilified in a way that perhaps male leaders are not? Well, well I interviewed uh, Theresa May for the book while she was still Prime Minister and uh, I actually really enjoyed that conversation, you know, despite the fact that I voted against almost everything that she brought to the Parliament. I do have a, um, a degree of respect for Theresa May. And, um, you know, she very much has championed women in the Conservative Party. And when she was chairman, they call it, of the Conservative uh, Party, she set up an organisation called Women to Win to try and get more uh, Conservative women into Parliament. And she did that because she saw in 1997, when she was elected, that the Labour Party was beginning to really uh, to, to elect more women and there were so many Labour women 101 Labour women famously in, in 1997 and she looked at her benches the Conservative benches and just felt at how unrepresentative they were of the country um, as a whole so she has always been a, a champion for women and when I um, asked her about her proudest achievement as, as, as Home Secretary she spoke about the work that she had done on modern day slavery and human trafficking uh, issues which do um, affect women um, often a lot more than the men and so she was obviously very proud of, of, of those achievements and and also the work that she was doing which then she um, she lost leadership of her party but the work she was doing on domestic violence uh, as well something uh, again that when i spoke to her about she was very passionate about now of course being on the Labour benches, I, myself and colleagues were urging her and her government to go further and, and faster in tackling these issues. But I would say out of um, you know, all of them, the members of the Conservative Party and, and all of the front benches I've seen, more than anybody, her and perhaps Justine Greening, have been real champions of, of women. And I do also agree with you, Jen, that she did often get 
you know, abuse and, and, and ridicule from her own colleagues. And we saw that particularly in, in the dying days of her government when Tory MP after Tory MP got up in the chamber uh, to, to criticise her and to, and, and to object to what she was doing, particularly on Brexit, but also in, in other areas as well. Mm. And it was so vitriolic. And, and it was almost always from male MPs. And I think there was a degree of sexism. Who do you think you are? What, what power do you have over us? I think there was an, an element of that. And, you know, in addition to that, of course, there was so much scrutiny of what she wore uh, as Prime Minister. You remember the story about the brown leather trousers, but also the, the kitten heel shoes. Mm. And you know, even when she was Prime Minister, it sometimes seemed to me there was more interest in, in what she was wearing rather than the contents of her speeches or her policies. And I think that really is the sort of the, one of the many challenges for, for women in, in politics today and all the way back over the last 100 years. Certainly the early women in Parliament, uh, you know, had to face levels of abuse as, as well and, and, and marginalisation and being ostracised by, by colleagues in, in Parliament and in the press as, as well. So, you know, there, there, was a, there was a lot of that 100 years ago, but I think the, the sad thing is that that would still be very recognisable to Nancy Astor or Ellen Wilkinson or Margaret Wintringham if they are watching down on our proceedings today. Mm. One of the other things that seems to me hasn't really come as far as it needs to in in that time, obviously it's come a lot further than back in the day, but um, childcare, you know, we've, we've rescheduled this chat today because obviously we're going through the coronavirus extreme time and obviously things are quite tricky and this is quite an exceptional example but you know we've rescheduled this chat today because of childcare, and we've seen recently like Stella Creasy, Tulip Sadiq and various other women who have been talking more and more about the barriers that they face as mothers and also MPs and obviously last year the sort of tail end of it with all of the Brexit votes and 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 the insanity of what was going on was really really hard I know for for female MPs with families do you think those barriers you know are, are they being sort of chipped away at or to what extent do those barriers still exist in terms of getting women into sort of you know the top jobs in parliament yeah I think if we take the sort of very long view then things have improved hugely of course um so the first four women to serve in the British cabinet Margaret Bonfield. Ellen Wilkinson, Florence Horsburgh and Barbara Castle. Only one of them was married, Barbara Castle, and none of them had children. And I think it would be almost impossible to imagine how a woman could have balanced uh, being in uh, the Cabinet and having um, children uh, during that time. And it wasn't until the late 1960s when Harold Wilson appointed Judith Hart to his uh, Cabinet that you had for the first time a mother um, as a member of the cabinet. And I, I interviewed Judith Hart's son, Steve Hart, for my book, and, and he said very proudly that he was the first uh, school child who could say, my mum is a cabinet minister. But that was a full 50 years after the first woman took her seat in Parliament that you had a woman serving in the cabinet um, who, was, who was a mother. So I think, you know, today, if you look around the, the, the cabinet table, whether it is um, Liz Truss or um, Priti Patel, you, you do have uh, women who are balancing work and, and family life. And that just wasn't the case for the first 50 years of, of women in Parliament. The first woman to have a baby while serving as an MP was Helen Hayman, um, who had her first child in 1976. 
two years after she was first elected in 1974. And politically, there couldn't have been a worse time to, to have a child. Um, Labour's majority, and she was a Labour MP, was, was wafer thin, and it was falling in a series of by-elections, uh, pairing, so the usual, um, the, the usual process of pairing yourself with an MP from another party to cancel out your vote. Um, if you were not able to, to attend a vote in Parliament, had, had been suspended. And so she wasn't able to be paired with a Conservative MP, which meant that um, two weeks after having her baby, she came into Parliament. Uh, she was driven by one of her, her female colleagues, uh, Lena Jager, to Parliament. She left the baby in its buggy in the whip's office and spent her evening walking through the division lobbies, voting in a series of, of crucial votes. And that has obviously changed today. The sitting hours are not what they were back in uh, the 1970s. And we have um, women MPs like Harriet Harman and Joan Ruddock to thank for that. But also, as you alluded to, uh, from January last year, we've had in Parliament proxy voting. Tulip Sadiq was the first MP to be able to um, make use of that on the 29th of January last year when she had just given birth to her second child and was able to nominate another MP to vote on her behalf. And you can now do that for six months as a new parent. And male MPs have used it as well as women when they've taken paternity leave. But that's a huge step forward because you now know as an MP that you can spend time in those first few weeks and months of a child's life bonding with them, knowing that your vote will still be counted and you can still represent your constituents in Parliament. I was thinking the other day, while I was watching Rishi Sunak giving his emergency measures for the for this awful yeah. coronavirus mess, that we have had two female prime ministers, we've had a female foreign secretary, we've had a few female home secretaries now, but we have still not had, unless I'm very much mistaken, we've still not had a female chancellor. No, we haven't had a female chancellor, and that is one of the things that you know, shows that there is still work to be done. We've only had one woman defence secretary, one woman speaker, and all, in all of these areas, you know, we need more women in, the, in these top roles to break through those glass ceilings that still remain. It, it is still the case that, that women are um, often appointed to, to roles that are perhaps seen as more feminine. And again, this has been the case for the last 100 years. That the first women in the, in the Cabinet tended to take roles like education mm. um, or, or welfare, areas perhaps like international development or education and uh, those briefs are incredibly important but those those major offices of, of state along with prime minister of, of foreign secretary home secretary and chancellor of the exchequer uh, women have been hugely underrepresented and in the case of chancellor not represented at all i mean i'm, I'm glad you said that about the kind of uh, for want of better words the sort of warm and, and fuzzy roles if you will is where we have tended to put more female secretaries of state and, and shadow secretaries of state is the Chancellor thing, do you think that is a reflection of, like, this is just, this is too serious for you? The economy is too big. A woman can't handle this. Well, listen, it's not just the economy. It is also Foreign Secretary. We've only had one woman yes, as Foreign yeah. Secretary, and that was Margaret Beckett. We've only had one woman Defence Secretary. So there are still some roles which, for whatever reason, Prime Ministers are not putting women into. And, and I, I think that does say something about what people think women are in Parliament for. Um, Herbert Morrison, who was Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and Home Secretary um, under Clement Attlee, when um, a large number of Labour women were elected in 1945, 
he urged them to stick to women's issues. And uh, one, when one Labour MP made her maiden speech on uh, foreign and defence issues, uh, he was very disappointed and, and annoyed with her for doing so. Uh, Ted Heath has once asked whether he thought there should be more women in Parliament, and there was a long pause, and then he said... Yes, I suppose so, as long as they bring a woman's perspective. Otherwise, there wouldn't be much point in having them there. And both of those comments, I think, um, show the sort of the view amongst a lot of men, men in Parliament, but maybe um, others as well, that women can contribute um, as long as those contributions are, are kept into the spheres that women have some knowledge about. And, and I think still too often the view is that women know about issues around about health and education and social security and matters in the home. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, men have got the issues of the economy and foreign affairs and, and defence policy um, covered. And uh, I, I think that's really disappointing because I think women have got a huge amount to, to offer in, in all of these areas. And I al- always have believed that um, groups of people from different backgrounds make better decisions. If you have a, a varied uh, a team with different experiences, life experiences, they're likely to make better, better decisions than a team of people all drawn from the same background. And the truth is, not only have we never had a, a woman as Chancellor of the Exchequer, we've never had a female permanent secretary at the Treasury, and we've never had a woman governor at the Bank of England. And so there are still areas where, although we may think in the last 100 years we've made great strides for equality, and we have, there are still some areas which are incredibly male-dominated and women still have to break through to those very top roles. What kind of difference do you think it would make in terms of policy and I guess in terms of ambition in other women kind of looking on? What kind of difference do you think it would make to have more women in those top roles? Well, first of all, I think if you are drawing from a, a talent pool of half the population, um, men, then you're missing out on a huge amount of talent. And I can't believe that in the last 100 years there has never been a woman um, who was sufficiently qualified to, to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, for example. Uh, and so I think that's part of the, the, the problem, that you're missing out on a huge amount of talent if you don't look uh, amongst um, women for uh, people to, to fill these roles. But, but also, as I say, I, I think that women can sometimes bring different perspectives and, and different experiences. And I don't think it's any surprise when Theresa May was, was Prime Minister, that she was championing in issues like domestic violence, that uh, when uh, Barbara Castle was um, uh, Secretary of State for, for, for Labour, that she was championing the issue of equal pay. It often takes having women in these roles to put issues that particularly affect women on the agenda, and, and that's been the case time and time again over the last 100 years. Justine Greening, for example, when she was Secretary of State for, uh, for Women and Equalities, uh, she really helped to secure some of the breakthroughs that we had on um, abortion rights in, in Northern Ireland. So I think having women in those leadership roles ensures that issues that are sometimes neglected are put front and centre. And that's a really good thing as well. I think finally, I would just say on that, that it would be such an inspiring thing for, for young women growing up today to see women in those roles. When Theresa May stood down as, as Prime Minister, my, my daughter, who was five at the time, said, oh, are we not going to have a woman Prime Minister anymore? Because she saw having a woman as Prime Minister as totally normal. Well, the fact is, 
you know, even in my lifetime, even in her mother's lifetime, there's only been two women prime ministers, and it's still not the, not the norm for a woman to be occupying 10 Downing Street. But having a woman as prime minister makes young women and girls think anything is, is possible. And I think it would be fantastic to have, you know, uh, more women in those top leadership roles in, in politics and in public life more generally and in business and culture and media to inspire and be role models for girls growing up today so they too can believe that anything is possible. Women of Westminster is available now in paperback as well as as hardback and it is published by Bloomsbury. Buy it online from your local bookshop or or something like that is probably the appropriate (laughs) thing to say at the moment. You've got lots of time to read so Rachel where can we keep up to date with with what you're up to? You can keep up to date with uh, things that I'm up to at Rachel Reeves MP on on Twitter or on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Well, Rachel, thank you very much for joining me and and good luck, you know, helping to run the country, basically. (laughs) Good luck to you, Jen, in the next few uh, weeks and certainly for June. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, As you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we cry because our maternity leave has been ruined by coronavirus as we discuss the absence of all things women's sport. Now, I mean, I realise my maternity leave example is quite specific, but if you like sport, this summer would have been a good time to be on maternity leave, right? Alas, not so much now. Since we last spoke, there's been another raft of cancellations in the sporting calendar, including the French Open, Wimbledon, plus the Olympics and the Women's Euros have also been pushed back. The Olympics will now take place next year from July 23rd to August 8th, and as you'll remember from the chat I had with Carrie Dunn the other week, the Women's Euros have been pushed back to 2022 to accommodate that. We were speculating at the time and Carrie thought that this would probably happen because women's football at the Olympics is actually kind of a big deal. 2022 is a men's World Cup year, so I'm not entirely sure how that will all fit together. I don't think there's been a formal announcement on the women's Euros yet, but it's widely anticipated that this will be the case and it's being reported by most media outlets, including the BBC. And you know what that means. It means it's... Basically, that's what's going to happen. The French Open, unlike Wimbledon, hasn't actually been cancelled. It's just been pushed back to September, right after the US Open. But I mean like a week after the US Open. So there'd normally be a couple of months between those big tournaments. But there are no Olympics, so it's not like they have that to worry about. All of this is going to have a huge impact on athletes, though. Olympic athletes, for example, train with a four-year cycle in mind. So they aim to peak at the right time in order to make gains for specific events like World Championships and the Olympics. So if you add a year to that cycle, obviously that could have a massive impact on performance. I mean, they're all going to be in the same boat, obviously, but I wonder how they will cope with that 
and indeed the next Olympic cycle after that, because that will be three years, presumably, following next year's Olympics. But there will be some people who won't be able to compete next year at all, for whatever reason, athletes who are perhaps coming to the end of their career. Jill Scott, who you will have heard speak on this very podcast previously she's one of the lionesses she's 33 and she'll be 35 by the time the euros come around and she's spoken about this recently with a tournament on home turf at last it would be devastating to miss out on that and there'll be other athletes affected by similar issues regarding the olympics here's another issue with the olympics given that individual athletes qualify for places as well as teams team gb told me this morning that the ioc which is the international olympics committee have confirmed that quota places already secured for Tokyo 2020 will remain with the nations that have secured them despite the postponement of the Games and at this time there's no change to the status of any athletes qualified or select. However, it's not all been fully worked out yet and they said that the British Olympic Association will continue to seek to provide greater clarity on this vital area for athletes and sports in the coming weeks, taking into account that this unprecedented, God we've heard that word a lot haven't we, situation has caused a huge amount of disruption to Olympic qualification events as well as to training and preparatory regimes. So there's going to be a lot for people to think about over the coming months. That was your roundup of women's sport. It's a bit briefer than usual, but say la vie. If you've got anything you'd like to hear about over the coming weeks during this fallow period, give me a shout on Twitter where you can find me at InspiraGen. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster left us all singing Leonard Skinner this week? And just on that note, I used to think it was Leonard Skinnerd, like it was just one man. <laughs> but then my friend told me he knew a girl who thought it was Les Zeppelin. Mr. <laughs> Les Zeppelin. I thought Leonard was a man. No, I thought, no. I thought it was, I mean, I know they're a band, but I thought Leonard Skinnerd might be like the frontman, maybe. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> you made me feel better, Joe. <laughs> On a, on a similar but not exactly the same anecdote, not at all related to what we watched. My nan had like seven sisters and they were all named after sisters of their mum. So they were named after their aunties and they all named their kids after each other. So in order to differentiate between who they were talking, they used to say sister for the ones that were my nan's generation. So my nan used to say, I spoke to sister Kathleen today or I spoke to sister Pat today. And when I was little, I thought that they were all nuns, even though I'd, <laughs> met, even though I'd met them. Amazing. So, Dunleavy, what disaster had absolutely no nuns in it this week? <laughs> this week we watched the, just absolutely my favourite film, Con Air. I know exactly the last time I watched it, which was I watched it in a guest house in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was with my family, we were on a holiday and we were supposed to be meeting my mum. You know, you go out and then everyone goes back to the hotel and then you go, oh, just have a shower and then we'll meet out the front and go and have something to eat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we were supposed to do. But all of us individually in our rooms had had showers, turned on the TV, gone, oh, Conair's (laughs) on. And then just sat down in a bath towel and watched it. And after about 45 minutes, my mum came and knocked on the door and said, I've been out there on my own for half a fucking hour. (laughs) And we were like, everybody's watching Con Air. Oh, I love it so much. But I was a little bit worried that, you know, time may have dimmed my love for it. But it absolutely did not. And we did a fun thing in my family that that is now going to become a weekly thing. 
my nephew and my brother watched it and we did like we do on this one two three record and we all pressed play so we were watching it at the same time and then we whatsapped each other while we were watching it and then afterwards we had a little meeting um and meeting that made it sound very business-like but (laughs) conversation and uh, we're going to have a film club every week now. But the great news is, like every other member of my family, my nephew absolutely fucking loved it too. Was that uh, a myself, Not really, because I just knew he would. Because we, he and my brother and my dad and I all have a very similar sense of humour. And I think that's what the joyful thing about Con Air is. It's, my nephew said, it's a film that's stupid, but it knows that it's stupid. And that is what makes Con Air... <laughs> It is so, very knowing. It really is very knowing. So, well, I'd say like 98% from, of it is knowing, apart from Mr. Nicholas Cage, if he was in Con Hair. <laughs> I have long been convinced that Nicholas Cage m- missed one production meeting. And it was the production <laughs> meeting in which everybody said, we're just going to take the piss with this, right? And everyone went, <laughs> yeah. And Malkovich was like, yeah, let's do that. And then Nicholas Cage turned up and didn't realise it was supposed to be kind of a black comedy or whatever it is that it that it is because it's not i think it definitely comes out of thriller and into something that's funny but funny for the right reason funny because it's got funny jokes in it yeah um jen did you like it i was going to ask has jen seen it before i've seen it once before which was probably it was on video or dvd or whatever we had back then quite soon after it was so probably about 1999 is when i watched it I would say. And I thought at the time that it was... I thought that Steve Buscemi was funny, but I maybe didn't understand that other people were funny. I have to say, I kind of... I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure that Nicolas Cage... Like, he's got to be taking the piss, hasn't he? It's that great episode of Community where they try and decide whether he's a good or a terrible actor. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes it's both at the same time. I mean, my my best mate Vera always says the thing you forget about Nicolas Cage is that he's been in some really good films. Yeah, he's um, got an Oscar. Also, he looks yeah Oscar for Moonstruck. Was it Moonstruck? No, I think he got I think he got an Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas, which is wonderful. There's going to be great. a horrible spike uh, when I screamed into my microphone. Then <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, um, uh, that I'm. Is, Absolutely gobsmacked that he has an Oscar. I can't believe he got an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas when clearly his entrance into Las Vegas in Con Air is yeah. Oscar worthy in itself. <laughs> okay, well, I suppose we could do a recap of the plot, but actually, one more anecdote. I think what was so nice about watching this with my nephew, I took my brother to see this when he was exactly the same age that my. We went to see it at the cinema when he's exactly the same age that my um, nephew is now. And we were the only people in the whole of the cinema that we were in that enjoyed it. And we were like roaring, oh, wow. laughing, and nobody else was. And when it finished, the guy behind me said to his girlfriend, I told you we should have gone to see Anaconda. And it would always be burned <laughs> into my brain. I've seen Anaconda and it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, don't bother. So basically what happens is Nicolas Cage plays this character called Cameron Poe, who... Oh, Hannah, Hannah, do the the hair, do the hair. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a couple of weeks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's a character called uh, Cameron Poe, who is in the army, gets in a fight, basically, and accidentally kills a man. It could happen to any of us. It could happen to any of us. I don't understand how he does it, because he kind of face palms him. 
he he does that thing that Hannah's dad told her to do, which is to punch someone right up the nose so yeah. it goes into their skull. Yeah. Oh wow! That was when I must have told you this when my dad did uh, did some basic uh, self defense training for me and my sister who were about nine and seven at the time. I love this anecdote. <laughs> he was like, "This is what happens." If someone tries to grab you or get you in a car, right? You know, like start screaming, re- start screaming really loudly, and then he was like, and then you want to like basically try and kick them in the balls, punch them in the balls, lots of stuff in the balls, and we were like, right, <laughs> and then he was like, or if not, go for the eyes, you know, just yeah, go for the eyes, which which Dwight in the office calls the groin of the face, and nothing has ever been true and said. <laughs> And then he was like, and finally he said, uh, if it's really bad, he says, you want to get the palm of your hand here? And he said, you want to drive it up towards their nose. And he said, although that will kill them. So use that sparingly. Those were his exact words. (laughs) Use that sparingly. (laughs) And my sister and I were like, okay, dad. Okay, dad. Anyway, Nicolas Cage, Cameron Poe, he ends up going to prison for a while. And during which time he just kind of just chills while prison riots go on around him. He's grown his hair as well, though. He yeah. has the weirdest collection of photographs on his wall. He has his daughter, who's been born since he's been in prison, and then he has Jesus, and then he has a nice car. And that's, like, all he has <laughs> on his wall. Yeah, uh, all the bases, yeah. you know. And then he gets released, and he is hitching a lift home on a flight so he can go home with uh, a bunch of the most dangerous criminals in the country, you know they're dangerous because they all have an AKA. None of them are. That AKA gets a lot of heavy use in Con Air. Here's Cyrus Grissom, AKA Cyrus the Virus. And that is a great scene when they all get introduced when they're coming off the bus. Right. It's like a really deadly Dallas, isn't yeah. it? They all just get a little, <laughs> yeah. a little montage. I mean, is that a disaster waiting to happen? Oh, yes, it is. Because the minute the plane takes off, everybody has a a, a, a plan kicks off. They've been able to communicate. We don't know this at the time, but we later discover they've been able to communicate with each other. <laughs> and they have created... <laughs> through pictures of the Last Supper. <laughs> through pictures of the Last Supper with all the eyes cut out of it. Um, the, <laughs> what they're going to do. And what they're going to do starts with Dave Chappelle setting a guy who's sitting next door to him on fire. And it brings me to my first point about if I was going to list the things that are wrong with Con Air, like number one is that Dave Chappelle isn't in it for long enough. And I oh, do I do wonder whether they wrote that role, they cast Chappelle, Chappelle started riffing like and stealing the show. And because the plot was already written, then he had to leave. You wonder if they'd had Dave Chappelle and they knew it was going to be him. They might have left that character in it for a bit longer because it's that bit where he says... I thought he was just doing the YMCA might be one of the funniest jokes ever in a film. It like (laughs) folds me up laughing every single time. (laughs) So eventually they take over the plane and then they try and escape. But on the ground, we have John Cusack in a a linen sand coloured suit and Mm. Cole Meany. Hang on, haven't we already seen him in a disaster film? You have. And Cole Meany, who is having 
the time of his absolute life. <laughs> Roll out the farrel. Astonishingly, Gary had never seen Con Air before, so he <gasps> popped his Con Air cherry. It was quite exciting and intense to watch it with but him. But why didn't you and... check that before you got engaged? <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I thought, you know, we had the no kids discussion, but I forgot to ask about Con Air. Yeah, and he just went, why, why is that man always shouting? I said, he's just like an angry ham. He's just yeah. an angry ham all the way through it. And so <laughs> they start working with Nicolas Cage on the plane uh, in an attempt to bring these people to justice. And the rest is just, I don't know, spectacular. They arrive at another airport, Carson City, where they manage to upload even more prisoners and actually offload all the guards. And then they go to a deserted runway where they're supposed to get another plane. That deserted runway or that deserted airport, I, I would like to say now, put a pin in this, still better than Luton. Absolutely. <laughs> Luton, better facilities though. than Luton Airport. I've got nothing more to say about this other than I just love it. it. John Malkovich is having the time of his fucking life making this. Somebody who's having a slightly better time than John Malkovich is the wig department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I'd love, because all of those wigs that, that uh, Nicolas Cage is wearing must be on, you know, those like polystyrene heads, like in a room. And I just kept picturing all of the different wigs <laughs> placed on all of the polystyrene heads already for I the next scene. I think it's his own hair. Mm, all the stuff at the front can't be. <laughs> Um, not, there's not the much for a while there's not much at the, but there isn't much at the front he's just got like a really long but, mullet but did you yeah but he didn't they didn't stop filming and wait for him to grow a mullet did yeah they, they fucking did yeah <laughs> how, is so he really seriously like, like raging bull <laughs> yeah. is he like De Niro and raging bull and just gained the hair instead or of the cast wig. away do you think they showed him a picture yeah. of Terry Notkins and said <laughs> <laughs> this is what we want Nicholas it's true. If you look closely, he's got two missing fingers that were still <laughs> <in the water. laughs> attached. From right at the very end when they're in Las Vegas and it's kind of, the back is kind of curly, but not intentionally curly. And the front is sweaty. kind of greasy. I thought, yeah, sweaty. I thought this is exactly what my hair looks like at the minute, the day before I decide to wash it. It's exactly that. It's dry <laughs> and sweaty and greasy and curly all at the same time. And we all know that you have just three photos in your house. One of a little girl, one of Jesus, <laughs> and one of a, one of a one nice of a car. car. <laughs> but I, just, I want to talk about Steve Buscemi's character, which is someone that Mickey and I discussed before we watched this, because obviously they're making someone who murders children funny. And there's no two ways about it. it, it, it he is exceptionally funny in this. One thing I'd never noticed before in Con Air, no matter how many times I've seen it, is... I've always thought, why is that little girl not scared of him when she meets him? And the reason is, have you seen the doll? That Did you see the doll that was sitting in the chair before? It's huge. It's, it's huge. And it's fucking terrifying. Even he it is later went on to star in uh, Toy Story 2. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. But it's still, even that doll can't be as terrifying as a, as a child murderer, though, surely. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, sorry, I was doing the kill action. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely think that, I mean, he's, Steve Buscemi's like, character is obviously creepy, but right up to the point that 
Like, he gets some form of redemption, which is supposed to happen at that moment, because guess what? He didn't kill someone. That makes him a nice guy now. And then, <laughs> and therefore, it's only right that he should be the only one off the plane who gets yeah. to live a but... life of freedom, having <laughs> killed the most people. What I, will so say, what I will say is, from the minute he gets back on the plane and he clips his little seatbelt on, and then he starts singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. That is just, I think that might be the best Steve Buscemi's ever been. It's so fucking funny. Just holding his little doll. Gary asked, has he got Billy Bob teeth in or are they his actual teeth in? I think think they're his actual teeth, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think so. He's got something in his teeth as well, I think, the whole way through. What, like spinach? It looks like he's got a little (laughs) poppy seed or something. Yeah. But also, do you know what? This is quite dark, and you might want to cut this out, but you know how they said, he said he wore a, li- a, a little kid's head as a hat? Yeah. 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 I'm trying to work out how would it stay on. And, like, sometimes <laughs> yeah. in my car, if I've got a high bun, it touches the ceiling. So presumably he's got a soft yeah. top. And... It was in a convertible, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I yeah. think if she had pigtails, he could tie them yeah. under his chin. We said exactly that when the little girl popped up. I was like, well, she's already got straps. <laughs> yeah. You I was going to cut all of this thing. out. Was he balancing no, it on no. his head? Or was he wearing it like as a mask? He says as a hat. Yeah. As a hat. I'm just saying we've all had the same thought, basically. Uh, yeah, you can tell Jen's not Jen's not a driver. You can't wear a face as a mask and be able to, you know, see the lights and stuff. <laughs> but um, it's, I was amazed because I'd forgotten that he was the only one at the end that gets away, and I was yeah. <laughs> I was quite shocked by it. Maybe at the time it didn't seem so shocking. Maybe because I was younger, or but I don't know. I just. Of all of them to get away, the most dangerous <laughs> but, one. Yeah, it's because he, he had that moment of redemption. Somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, because he's given up child murdering for now. Uh, yeah. yeah, for now. For yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, Sarah, he didn't kill someone. That makes him a good person. <laughs> that's the only. That's the base criteria for being a good person. Parole granted. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually got loads of like just great, whatever you want to call them character actors like mc gainey like uh, people like that just um i think ving rames is great in this as well in fact i don't think there's anyone that's like doing a bad job with the exception of nicholas cage who just oh no seems... i think he's doing a great job he just seems really <laughs> just i don't know like he's in a different film it's very odd to me a couple of things worth he, noting but... number one he goes really heavy on the barbecue metaphor he constantly says, <laughs> I'm not coming to this barbecue. This is your barbecue, Cyrus. This isn't my barbecue. And at the end... Do you um, think he was really hungry when yeah. he filmed it? But if you've been in prison for seven years, you uh, probably miss a barbecue as well. When We've he been in up... lockdown for two weeks and we're missing a barbecue. <laughs> at the end, when he meets up with his family, Ethan says, oh, they're going off to be happy together. He t- he like, And my, my brother said, oh, they're going to have a fucking barbecue. That's where they're going. <laughs> yeah. Um, the bit where I think personally, like, I mean, how many people, what the casualness with which they like land on the strip? I mean, thousands of people must have died and it's not mentioned at all, apart from the bit where uh, John Cusack's character says, I need like ambulances and basically anyone who can do CPR. Because um, that's what you want in that situation, a first aider. Does also say, um, I bet you're glad we didn't shoot down this plane now. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, yeah, this was much better. <laughs> I feel like it should have stopped at that point because then it does go a bit silly because obviously they have to chase uh, Malkovich and Ving Rames. And, and Lemmy. And is that Lemmy? Ving Rames like is Lemmy Diamond Dog, a swamp thing, um, who's driving the things. And then 
Despite the fact they're in downtown Las Vegas, there still seems to be some sort of stamping mill in the middle that John Malkovich gets thrown into and then gets his head. I mean, I'm pretty sure they aren't uh, there aren't things like that on the strip. I mean, I've no, not been. Not. But... I think so. I think you that know was the bit when he pulls the... works. Oh, was it? When he pulled so. the, the 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 wood down, the the whatever it was, broom handle, and it just split, and then he put it through uh, Cyrus the Virus's leg, and I was yeah. like, could a wood go just through a leg? I was I was very sharp questioning the lot, <laughs> lot of the practicality. <laughs> Cyrus <laughs> the Virus is basically treated as Rasputin. He gets yeah. killed like four times. Yeah. And it's only when he gets stamped on the head to death. That we can finally believe in that final leg shudder, which yeah. is chef's kiss. That he's, <laughs> that he's gone. He's gone. He's been wiped out. I think you're right, Sarah. I think there are loads of flaws in this film, but the but it were it a lesser film, as in silly things like that. Do you know what I mean? Just silliness. Like he wouldn't be able to walk. Were it a shit film, you could focus on those and go, "Oh, that's really stupid." But oh because, yeah, because it's just so preposterously big and fun and oh, but just you're ridiculous. talking to somebody who like. Oh, my, because my dad's an engineer or was an engineer. So he, when we watch like Speed, he would question it. He would question how you could, in Die Hard, whether you could actually get into a lift shaft. So I've just <laughs> got that. All, I've always got my dad in my ear going, yeah, you couldn't get, that wooden spike wouldn't go straight through. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it makes the film better. It makes all films better. <laughs> Imagine your dad's just waiting for Nicholas Cage to somehow get a hammer from somewhere and kind of start tapping that wood yeah. through the leg. <laughs> Exactly. A mallet, maybe a mallet and a chisel would be better. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Director's cut. Director's cut. Absolutely. But yes, I had the best time. This is just endless amounts of fun. I immediately thought I might have to watch that once a week while we're in lockdown just to cheer myself up. It's yeah. so good, and it's when he said, "Wait, where are you going? I'm going to go and save the fucking day." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> it's some of the lines of dialogue are so great." <laughs> I just I like it when Nick Cage is just leaping with fire behind him. I just. Running from fire was one of the things I was going to put on Sarah's bingo sheet. Running from fire. Because it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. Um, But yes, I mean, it doesn't have enough women in it. And the women that are in it are largely in like ridiculously passive roles and all of that. Um, And Nicolas Cage has many opportunities to leave, but doesn't leave because... McKelty Williamson may die and because he wants to protect the woman and I object to all I of those things. can't exchange a friend's life for my own. I object to most of those things normally in films but not in this not in this at all <laughs> because it kind of fits. Johnny Trejo is particularly horrific in it he's called Johnny 23 he's a rapist but I did have to point out to Gary that the real Danny Trejo did recently save a small child from under a lorry. He did, yes. So, oh yeah. did he? Yeah. It's good isn't it? Yeah. Is that made up for the rapes though? <laughs> Does that make up for the rapes? Um, I don't think Danny Trejo did the rapes, to be fair. (laughs) To be fair. Oh, he has got that tattoo. It's a real tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Can we find out what Sarah's got on her sheet? I didn't 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 do Sarah's sheet. So I'll get one next week. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. It meant I could watch it just for fun and I wasn't making notes, so that's nice. Yeah, I mean, it still didn't feel like school, if I'm honest, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> it still felt pretty fun. I've not done very well. I think I've got three. I've got five, which I'm surprised by. I think I've got six. Do you want to go first, Jen? Okay, I've got a Brexit analogy for you, which I've just thought of. So, like, their plane is sort of like Boris's cabinet 
of like Brexiteers <laughs> where he's basically hand selected morons in order to uh to make this work, except they're not morons, they're just like wrong in other ways. Um and surprise, surprise, they're not that good. After all, it was quite a bad idea and we're all fucked. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Allowed. Um, so many helicopters. There are a lot of helicopters. They're funny um, looking helicopters, aren't they? They look like they've really, been made in flat packs or something. Yeah, like, <laughs> like 2D. Like the, yeah. Um, then the other one is, can you smell burning? Yes, I can. It's my crotch because you've just thrown some paraffin <laughs> on me. <laughs> And actually, it's quite a lot of burning in it in general. That's it. Well, I think that's all I've got. Nick Cage has to run away from fire a lot. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I've got anything else. Okay, I've got fancy hairdo gone bad. And just to clarify, that's between him doing the incident and going to prison, not between him leaving the prison and the rest of it. <laughs> Cassandra ignored. John Cusack knew that it was Cameron Poe was working from the inside. Uncanny prediction of real life disaster. Now, while we were watching this, my na- my nephew informed me that a body did fall from frozen from an aeroplane into London, yeah. and that did happen. Oh, yeah, that did happen. N- yeah, I didn't even know that, but um, quite recently, I googled it, and it mm. is a thing. Uh, it was going so well until I sprained my ankle. Slash somebody stamped on my insulin. Yeah. And adopt brace position. Obviously. It's quite the bumpy ride, isn't it? It is. Um, I've got, but I have to find my son slash get to my daughter. Yeah. Um, or meet my daughter, in fact. Mid-disaster punch-up. I mean, that's just basically the film. <laughs> it's okay. just one long series of punch-ups. Farewell, major landmark. Goodbye, Las Vegas Strip. Bridge collapse when it's hit by a Malkovich. Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? John Cusack and Steve Buscemi. And what was John the... Cusack in? 2012. No, what's oh, it called? 2012. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where are the fucking women? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Mickey wins. And there's lots watch. of pictures of them on, on all the prison cell walls with another, another picture of a different car. I wonder if they all get to choose a picture of a car when they first go to prison. Somebody ends Why up with like the... a Rover Metro. <laughs> <laughs> They've been in for a long time, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why some of them were so angry. <laughs> yeah. Angry. Um, can we watch Tremors? Yeah, Yeah. Gary's wanted me to watch it for ages, so he'll be really pleased. If I can find it, we can watch it. Awesome, awesome. I like that you say that about everything, Hannah. (laughs) We can find it, we can have it. Standard Issue for All Women.